greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome a guest whose work runs a prolific gamut of sights, words, and scents. As the creator and host of the live talkback series Meet the Lady, he's had in-depth discussions with some of cinema's greatest female talent. As a writer, his byline has appeared in such publications as Signature Reads, New York Magazine, The Guardian, and IFC News. His work with the legendary Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab has helped curate signature fragrances for the likes of Guillermo del Toro, Neil Gaiman, and Hellboy creator Mike Mignola. And his recent work helped rescue the memoir of the Bride of Frankenstein herself. Please welcome to the show, writer, host, and bon vivant, Tom Blunt. Oh, that is so much to live up to. Thank you so much, Michael. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you for joining us today. I'm excited to have you on the show. I have to be honest that The Guardian wasn't a byline... Uh, and IFC, they wrote about a project I did, but I didn't write for them. I, w- I would love to. They can reach out. Um, yeah? Yeah. I wrote a, I made a blog called Doom Cakes, which was about a cinematic theory I created about how cake is never eaten in films. And because it's never eaten, it just like expresses a malignant energy that causes chaos and sadness to unfold around it. And I created a lot of like, I had a lot of examples and clips to show cakes not being eaten in movies and then disaster happening, or cakes getting smashed, which happens all the time. And weirdly, above all the things that I could possibly have written about, this went around a little bit more, and people to this day are still sending me doom cakes from movies that they see. That's exciting. And so IFC News and Guardian talked about this? Yeah, yeah, they like kind of plucked it out of the internet somewhere, like a kernel of food between the internet's teeth, and just like uh, talked about it. Uh, it was really great, and uh, this, you know, to be honest, I got so excited about it and compiled so many clips that this is what got me banned from YouTube for like <laughs> copyright takedowns. Well, normally uh, I would be bummed out that I like misunderstood the byline situation, <laughs> but if it leads to the discussion of the legendary Doom Cake, like oh. that to me is all that I could ask for. I still see them all the time because the other night my boyfriend and I watched a double feature of that new movie, uh, Unforgettable, which is the trash with Rosario Dawson and Katherine Heigl, and then also The Boy Next Door with J-Lo, and both of the movies at the beginning involve the heroine like cutting a cake that is never eaten, uh, like foretelling the disaster that unfolds throughout both films. Oh my god, I'm obsessed with this. And uh, please ignore the, the cake on the table in front of us ah. as, as we get the show going. Um, great, so uh, with Zoom Cakes to kick us off, why don't we start <laughs> the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest, and it is simply this why horror and you can interpret that however you want what is your connection to horror why do you think horror appeals to people but why horror well i know i'm not alone here but from a young age as like as a gender non-conforming person and just living in the middle of nowhere um with not a lot to compare myself to other people in the world i was not worldly and i knew deep down from an early age that i was a monster I was what everyone was afraid of. I had the questions that no one was supposed to ask. I had the obsessions and interests that were not appropriate to discuss. Mm -hmm. And I, keeping that completely to myself was a full-time job until I was old enough to meet the people and get the courage to kind of, you know, pull me out. And I have to say that that was only the beginning of my career as a monster because then once I began talking openly about myself or like asking questions of my family and people in my church or people in my community, I realized that that is the most terrifying thing that you can do is start talking about stuff that's actually wrong uh, around you, going on around you or in the world. Right. Uh, it just, you know, it, people react to that like uh, acid thrown in the face. So, And you come from a fairly conservative background, yeah? Very much so. I grew up in a small town in Arizona And uh, my parents weren't religious, but the whole community was. And I adopted religion very early on as a young people pleaser who was determined to know the right answer to literally every question um, and be on the right side of everything, of course, gravitated toward religion. And, uh, you know, that didn't work out so great in the long term. (laughs) My breaking point was a Bible camp that showed us clips of Mrs. Doubtfire to show us how portrayals of homosexuality were being normalized in the media. And the funny thing was every kid in the room had seen Mrs. Doubtfire and loved it. So after they showed us the clips, someone was like, can we watch the rest of it? And the counselor just looked around awkwardly and was like, I mean, yeah, okay, I guess. And then they just let us watch the rest of Mrs. Doubtfire. 
Oh, man. You know, I've heard a lot of stories and a lot of uh, revolutionary moments uh, for people over the course of the show, but I kind of love the subtle subversion at a Bible camp of Mrs. Doubtfire oh, yes. being the flip. And Grease 2 also. They showed us the reproduction dance number from Grease 2 as a way of like how teenagers are sexualized by Hollywood and it's, you know... Which I would like to take a brief moment to put a pin here and say uh, the reproduction number in Grease 2 features Tab Hunter, who recently passed away Ugh. and uh, is someone who I have great affinity for, as do a lot of queer people who love cinema and cult cinema. So uh, just a moment uh, since we're returning this week after a hiatus to send a little love to Tab wherever he may be. It was heartbreaking to hear that. And reading his book as someone who had grown up in such a closeted and conservative environment really made me sad because his book was incredible, but you could even see the places where he was still so afraid to tread and not willing to talk about. And it's like, those scars last a lifetime. They do. And you know what's really outrageous to me is we don't, I think, give him enough credit in kind of the pantheon of queer icons because when you think about the fact that he was outed, at an era where no one was openly gay in Hollywood and still survived. And, you know, he had he had a brief like hiatus, but then he kind of came back and made movies with Divine as if to sort of say, like, all right, yeah, I am. And I'm going to own this. And that to me is so badass and transgressive and rebellious in a way that we never really talk about, especially when he's standing next to someone like Divine, who's a punk rock wrecking right. ball. He doesn't look queer next to Divine, but like taking that route really was a queer act. And I mean, he his own conflictedness about that is just like remains apparent. But like it's one of those things where we find so often with LGBTQ people that like when you put someone's back against the wall, you honestly have no idea what they're going to end up doing. And the answer could be wind up being really illuminating or really shocking or really tragic. You just don't know. And the sad thing is for all the great stuff we have to show for people who've survived that, you know, like you know, I, people still ask me stuff like, you know, if, for example, they ask like during Pride, someone was like, oh, you know, is talk to me about queer family, you know, and the importance of queer family. And I'm like, oh, it's just so incredible. And it's, it serves this vital function. But like, truly, most people would rather have been loved by their original family to begin with. Right. You know, like you can't really put like uh, you can't really qualify th these experiences. No, it's so true. Now, bringing it back to you and and this sort of the uh, beginnings where you found yourself drawn to this genre of otherness because as in your own words you felt like a monster mm -hmm. when did you start looking at the world of art that you were gravitating to and and make the conscious decision you know I want to be involved in that some way uh, because I know that you've been involved in theater you're a writer when, what was was there a pivotal moment where you're like okay this is my solace but this may also be my path there was so I watched some school plays when I was uh, you know probably in middle school I watched the high schoolers do some of their shows I was so impressed with it and because they seemed like stars to me because I could not imagine getting on stage and saying some of the things they were saying or even having the courage to just, you know, to have that freedom. I was just so uh, introverted and in many ways, podcast appearances notwithstanding, I still am. <laughs> so like, so at some time, um, I finally got brave enough to, you know, to uh, take a drama class or to try out for a play. And it was really, really, really difficult. I was, it was completely fish out of water. But also, it was a small town and I was a boy, so I was able to get parts right. and do things. And I was accepted. And, uh, and then through there, that was the gateway to like the literature of queerness. For example, you know, reading Tennessee Williams, which I saw so much of myself in these plays that I was reading. And it really began to expose me to. Because, okay, so here's the thing, like if you, this is pre-internet, and if you don't know what books to look for or what keywords to search, you know, you don't even know what, you can go to the public library and still come back with no answers. Right. So I would go to the library looking for clues of what was out there and who was out there and what kind of person I could be. And it, it took a lot of trial and error for many years. And then once I kind of found my way into theater, that was where I was off and running. And I actually then... The, I broke out of Arizona because I 
adapted a novel that I loved by Barry Gifford into a play. And I worked on it and worked on it privately. And finally, I realized that there was no point in going any further unless I actually reached out to see if it was possible to produce it. So I sent a letter to Barry Gifford through his publisher. And I think I was 19 by this time, and I was really at the end of my rope in Arizona. Nothing was working out. I was selling plasma to, you know, make ends meet. Right. Um, I was completely majorly depressed. Uh, well, manic depressive. It was just, you know, it was the the wheels were coming off the train. And uh, I'll never forget the night I came home and my roommate told me that I had a message on the answering machine from Barry Gifford. And he had personally called me to talk about the script and asked me a lot of questions and thought it was good and wanted was, was interested in working with me on it mm-hmm. and wanted to know, you know, if I hoped to get it produced in New York or California and other questions that I was completely uh, unprepared to answer. Right. Uh, you know, and that changed my life because it was just that one bit of affirmation coming from the wider world that I had read about for so long and just that handout and a couple other people here and there I reached out to Jill Sobule the singer-songwriter who sang I Kissed a Girl oh my god I love her Rainy Day Parade yeah <laughs> she was a favorite of mine from high school and I we, there was a song in the play and I don't know how to write a song so I wrote her an email and said you know we're, we're doing this play I would love to have you write a song for it and she wrote back and said come and meet me at my concert when I come to Phoenix and we'll talk about it and then later when I moved to Brooklyn she and I worked on a musical project together you know like all I started to feel the results of putting myself out out there. Uh, and all of these gestures just seem insane to someone from where I grew up. Like my parents thought I was completely out of my mind and my friends probably did too. It just seemed too much to hope for right. or dream for. There's no place for someone like you until you just like throw yourself across the path of someone who recognizes you and welcomes you to the party. No, I think, I think that's really great uh, in both an artistic narrative, but also queer narrative, yeah. where you have to take that moment where you realize you can't live for other people. Because as long as you follow the narratives of other people, you never are truly going to be yourself. Right. And you artistically needed to branch out and become who you were. Right. But also, it spoke to a deeper identity of, of, of queerness. Completely. I think, too. And if I had made it into college or in an environment where there was like, you know, that kind of support, maybe I never would have even bothered reaching out that hard. But like, right. my father didn't believe, he's from a farming family, had no, didn't believe in education in the slightest. And my mom did, but, you know, her hands were kind of tied in these matters in terms of helping me. And, I, you know, did a little bit of community college, but was forced to basically drop out by circumstances in my life and leaving my home. And it was like I didn't find the things that you would maybe normally find on a college campus. You know, there was no community. I was instead working graveyard shift at Denny's and like ultimately finding like those artists, nighttime people, the night people, as Tennessee Williams would have said. And uh, that ended up being my path. You know, I, and I, I'm always looking over my shoulder at what the other path would have been like, because you see other people out there doing projects where you're like, oh, I wish I was working on that. Or God, if only I'd even known that that job was like existed right. 15 years ago, you know, it's really an interesting trade-off. But like, that's why I think why queer pride is so important too, because unless you can see what's good about what you have, there's always someone somewhere else who's better looking or smarter or has more money or better connections, you know, or had a better education or is just, you know, fucking luckier than you. So. Sure. But, you know, I think the problem too in life is that uh, we always have these seeds of doubt sown. And I think that especially in the queer community, when for much of our formative years, we're told to be this way, or you can't be this thing, or uh, we're told what our identity has to be. Of course, we're always comparing ourselves to other people. And I think artists similarly do that because there's always that, oh, well, she booked this part or he wrote that movie or this like, you know, thing. And I remember, and this is speaking of getting getting gay, I remember reading an interview in Playbill a long time ago with Bernadette Peters, and uh, I forget like what the actual framing was, but the the interviewer asked her about um, 
auditions and like making a, a stake in your claim in your career. And she said, the thing that I often find is that people will always like come to Hollywood, come to New York and say, I want to be the next Streisand. I want to be the next Bernadette Peters. I want to be the next Brad Pitt. And she's like, but don't because they've already got one of those. Right. So why do they need you if that's all your aspiration is? And one thing I really admire about you is that I think at some point you realized there's one Tom Blunt. Right. And you're rocking that, I think. It took so long to, to realize that, though, because for the longest time, I just wanted to be the next Bernadette Peters. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I can see it. You know, well, you know, like, uh, yeah, it just doesn't occur to you for so long that you have anything of value. I wonder why, you know, it's, right. it's, it's, that's why these communities in queer culture and in the arts and the night people like in burlesque and in drag and all these areas, it, there's such family and camaraderie there. And it, it's so great. It really captures that energy that I remember from being like a teenager trying to find it where people are genuinely happy for you. You do a number or a set and people are like, oh my God, that's so incredible. I want to work with you. Or like, will you make this prop for me? Or, you know, like you have to meet so-and-so. And yeah, there's also this horrible high school politics that come in with all of that right. in every community that's that open to just anyone. Uh, but that affirmation is just like, ugh, it is just like water to someone who's been crawling out of the desert literally in my case, you know, right. for years. So the phone call from Barry Gifford, uh, the interaction with Jill Sabule, what point do you decide to leave Arizona and go to New York? The moment that Barry Gifford said, are you going to do the play in New York or California? And I had a, f oh, to be honest, uh, this was around September 11th. And uh, at, I had, a, I had a couple of friends living in New York who had moved from Arizona and I had this deep down feeling amidst because Arizona was a horrible place to be post September 11th because of the xenophobia and, uh, you know, the rampant jingoistic nightmare of everyone in Arizona acting like this was something that had happened in Arizona and could happen in Arizona. Right. Plastic sheeting on the windows, the whole thing. And I remember thinking like anything interesting or important that's going to happen in the next 10 years is going to happen is going to come out of New York. Right. Because of of the transformation that I know people are going through right now. And as, I don't know, maybe that sounds cynical, but to me it was like, this is where art is needed. And I convinced my coworker to go in on a U-Haul with me and we drove across the country, like scarcely stopping. And I barreled into town and Barry had a, <laughs> he was, at the time he was, he, um, published, I think he still might be doing some stuff with a small indie publisher called Seven Stories Press. And he told me that if I went in, maybe I could, he could get, help me get an internship there. And I just went into Seven Stories Press with, and I, I swear to God, I had printed my extremely like embellished resume on a sheet of clear acetone and then paper clipped it to a backing page so that it had this like incredible transparent effect. And like walked in and did my best Suzanne Stone from To Die For and just convinced them that I was here, you know, and the, I was the, the solution to all of their problems. And uh, they they took me on. I mean, I'm sure they thought I was ridiculous, but it was it's free. Free labor is free labor. Right. And I was an intern there for about a year. And that kind of at least helped me feel like the circuit was complete. You know, I was I had found a foothold somewhere. And from there, everything in life in New York for 14 years was just leveraging one foothold to the next to climb up that sheer rock face. And so we were talking a little bit about uh, your your genesis in the world of theater. Yeah. Um, obviously, you wrote the script that Barry Gifford yeah. called you about. And it was never produced. <laughs> <laughs> but tell me a little bit also, because I know you're a writer and have always sort of gravitated towards writing. Obviously, we talked about both your byline and your doom cake yeah. <laughs> research. Um I uh, am curious um, about your writing trajectory a little bit. Tell me a bit about that. Because it seems like while you were in New York, you really kind of made made a name for yourself in that world as well. I leaned on that hard. I didn't think that you could go to New York and try to be a, like a performer and a writer. I thought that sounded greedy and that you needed to specialize in order to focus your energy and really make sure that you, you know, did your, did, you know, you had to find one thing. Mm -hmm. 
especially coming like I was nobody with no money and no education and like very scarce contacts. So it was like, all right, like, let's not let's try to be practical. The person says who drove a Utah, a U-Haul to New York. So I um, I really leaned on the writing for some time. Um, eventually, I managed to get in writing for like AMC did a horror blog around the time that Mad Men and Breaking Bad were coming out. And I wound up finagling you know, working there as a horror columnist and doing a lot of interviews. And so, so that was a kind of a big turning point for me that led to doing shows was suddenly I could just pitch and say, I want to, oh, uh, David Cronenberg's doing an opera version of The Fly. I want to interview him about it. And I want to interview David Hedison, who played The Fly in the original movie. And my editor would be like, yeah, go ahead. Not realizing, of course, that these are like childhood dreams of mine coming true right. before my eyes. And then you reach out and you find out people are willing to talk to you, you know. And I, I, I did a bunch of interviews for them, one after another after another. And that really got me going in terms of just feeling like it was like kind of the same spirit that had me reach out to Barry Gifford. You know, it's like if you just reach out, someone might reach back. Yeah, and I think that 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 is something that is such a hindrance to so many people who are aspiring or dreaming of a world in writing or the arts or whatever, is that when you are elsewhere uh, and, you know, you're in a small town uh, in Pennsylvania or Arizona (laughs) or wherever, it seems so far away and it seems so inaccessible. Right. Uh, But... Everyone's still a person. Right. And a lot of people, if you can get in touch with them, are usually very gracious. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there were some things when I look back at my own career in writing and in film, some of the early stuff, like just the emails that I sent or letters that I tore off, they seem like crazy now, like very bold. Yeah. But it took that one person to write back and be like, yeah, sure. And then all of a sudden. Yes. You've got a trajectory. This is where, like, I think some queer people find a lot of strength because if you can go through a lifetime of anticipated rejection and come out of that on the other side feeling like well I've already been rejected by literally everyone including my parents Mm -hmm. so who cares if I write an email and they say no you know like that's what I discovered in myself is just like it was like like I, you know, my back's against the wall, and who cares? If I, they say no, they say no. It's that culture of asking, like, and and hoping against hope. Whereas the all, the other side of that is growing up queer or any form of LGBTQ, etc., and being so beaten down. And I, you know, have known so many people like this where you are hurt so badly, so young, right. that you actually cannot bring yourself to face certain forms of rejection. Well, it's interesting. So I just attended uh, the opening night of Outfest and and the keynote speaker said something that was a nice and refreshing reminder that I think speaks to what you're talking about now is she said she was like, you know, you have to remember that coming out even in 2018 is a political act that living an openly queer life in the modern era is still a political act because you are willing to put yourself out there in a world that we know still has issues, right. they're in some parts of the world, like making queer art, living a queer life could be illegal. Right. And so I think there is, once you come to terms with that, and once you realize that your very existence is in the face of what we uh, you know, consider to be, quote, norms, right. it is easier to be bold about little things. So you write an email to David Cronenberg. If he doesn't write you back, who the fuck cares? Right. My entire existence is an anom- anomaly. Right. So, you know, <laughs> that whole, you know, like when you think about it, yeah. truly, like, and so that's always like, you know, when I talk to uh, listeners or people, aspiring artists or whatever, I'm like, you know. What do you have to lose? Yeah. And if you lose, who the fuck cares? You learn more from a failure than a success anyway, and it will just make you keep going. Yes. So many people, I think, dance around the threshold of that for so many years because of it's just that, like, as long as you don't cross certain thresholds, you can still tell yourself that you're living a normal life or that you're right. doing the things that normal people do. And we see how badly people in the LGBTQ community need that. Right. They need to be normal. They need to pass. You know, they need to keep their families from finding out certain things. All of these things that just congeal around you and keep you in a kind of like envelope where you are stuck with your ideas or your thoughts or your plans and they never make it past that. This is why, probably, why we live such rich, imaginative inner lives, you know, whether we end up breaking out or not. And why, uh, 
you know, people like yourself and other people who are making a platform and speaking out why they find such great fans because so many people relate to every part of your story except for the part where you actually like planted a flag and you know struck out and said these things where everyone could hear them right and you know i i appreciate that but like my follow-up to that is to tell people you can too you should too oh yes we need you to yeah you have to everyone deserves the chance and everyone deserves the opportunity and everyone should go for it. I know for a fact that there are people like if if there is someone watching you where if you do something, someone, you know, or even don't know, will look at you and say, if that person can do that, like, what is stopping me? Maybe even because they hate what you did. 100%. (laughs) They're like, oh my God, can you believe that guy got that deal to do this or that he gets a podcast or that he does this? Like, I could do so much better. Please do better. We need you so badly. Yeah. I always say that. Like, or like, you know, whenever, you know how when you're in the supermarket and you see that like end cap of, well, maybe not anymore. Welcome to the digital area. Where (laughs) where there was that end cap of DVDs that you were like, I have never heard of any of these movies. You can find me there seven days a week. And (laughs) and you're like, and who made these? Who wrote these? Well, Someone did. And if they made that movie, you can make a movie like that. And honestly, as an interviewer, you know, like digging around and interviewing these people, you find so many undercurrents of the same story. For some reason, they the only thing, the only difference between them and someone else is that they did it. That's it. And like sometimes they have the same kind of bemused quality about their own work and people enjoying it because they honestly can't believe they did it themselves. It's you should always be a little surprised by yourself. And speaking of interviewing, I think this would be a good moment to talk about uh, a certain milestone of yours. Uh, while you were in New York, you uh, were doing a lot of theater projects. Your writing is is uh, going, and you're breaking out and doing that. And you eventually create a live series called Meet the Lady. So tell me about the genesis of that. And uh, I really think that my listeners are going to dig this because (laughs) it's a true celebration of uh, one thing I know a lot of gay men specifically enjoy, and that's actresses. Yes. Well, I will give you and your listeners the exclusive on this. At the time, I was interviewing people for horror, uh, for AMC's horror blog. I was trying to interview Betty Buckley about the happening because mm-hmm. that movie was coming out and no one had seen it and I was trying to arrange an interview with her and it wasn't clear if it was going to come together in time because as you can imagine she's doing press for the movie and she's very busy so at the time I was joking about how if I was to my friend uh, who is now the drag queen Ariel Italic in New York I was joking about how if I wasn't able to get Betty Buckley, I should just interview some lady on the street about the happening, you know, and like in addition to just like the happening, completely mundane topics like where did you get your hat? And like, <laughs> you know, like all of these things just to, you know, to kind of like soft shoe and like take up space and like see if I could fool my editor, you know, into letting something really strange go by. So that was how the turn, like the idea meet the lady came up. Cause it was like the idea of it's like, Oh, meet the lady. What lady? Well, who cares? You know, which, <laughs> and to be honest, that's the way people think about most character actresses and most sort of minor figures is like the, the recurring theme is that they can't get their due. And the idea that any random person that you stop to talk to in New York city might be like really incredible and have an incredible story to tell you, which is not especially novel idea. Uh, I did not invent this, but I did double down on it because what happened is I was invited uh, a friend of mine when, when the 92nd street Y opened their downtown screening room, my good friend, Kevin Marr got booked to do like sci-fi variety shows there. He liked my work. He was a coworker at AMC. He told me that I should pitch a show for them. And I did a Nina Simone tribute show where we showed the entirety of her 1976 Montreux Jazz Festival concert, which is a kind of a tragedy. It's kind of a really amazing uh, small concert film. And honestly, uh, this they used the opening, uh, they used footage of it from that uh, documentary on Netflix, What Happened Miss Simone, opens with some Montreux Jazz Festival footage. They kind of focused on that. And many years later, um, I was told that a producer of the film had actually seen my Nina Simone tribute show, and that kind of put, like, the idea of the footage, like, in his head. And it was, a tr- you know, one of those small things where if you hang around long enough and do enough stuff, you find yourself footnoted in lots of tiny imperceptible ways that help you sleep at night. Right. So anyway, um, he's like, yeah, pitch a show. I did the Nina Simone show. 
was a sold out thing twice in a row and then the the programmer said you know i'd love to hear an idea for a recurring show i had no ideas i had no ideas i didn't know this was coming and so of course i blurted out the idea of doing a meet the lady show it was something like a 75 seat screening room so i knew that i could do like a niche audience and i thought if all i have to fill is that many seats why not choose women to spotlight who don't get their due why not do a tribute show uh, for Ema Sumac, uh, why not do a tribute show for Brett Summers or Pearl Bailey or Ann Miller or any one of these like women who entertained everyone and toiled tirelessly and were incredible personalities uh, who people today mostly don't remember, but then also this being you know New York City, you can count on a, some gaze mainly to, re- to remember right and it's funny because the idea was like this was such a small screening room to fill but then of course when you start out with a show like this uh and you're getting like 11 people in the audience uh it's very humbling yeah so we started very small um with our brett summers show and we actually managed to get her musical director from the one woman show that she did toward the end of her life to come and share anecdotes and we showed film clips and this broadened into me bringing in like performers to do like a burlesque tribute to a a certain person and if that person had a book we hired actors to do readings from it and it just became a great pastiche comedy blend of myself and other often queer uh, personalities right and hopefully wherever possible actual ladies to show up and talk for themselves for example we did a hagsploitation Meet the Lady Show, where we hosted Lorna Raver, who had just done Drag Me to Hell as the uh, Sylvia Ganush uh, old Roma woman character. Right. And this was so great. It was a tremendous get for me. I was so starstruck. The show ran like three hours long because I was still figuring out all the bolts. And she and her friends sat very politely through the whole thing. And she probably thought it was totally insane. Um, But doing a few of these shows and the gets of these interviews... very gradually over time really did start to build up to where we were selling out shows Mm -hmm. sometimes or getting crazier and crazier interview possibilities. So we did a Women of Twin Peaks show where we got to interview via telephone uh, Cheryl Lee, uh, Catherine Coulter. You know, like uh, we did, uh, we hosted a screening with Amy Sedaris of uh, Go Ask Alice including the star of the movie Go Ask Alice from the 70s, who was so starstruck by Amy Sedaris that it was just like, it felt like, I felt like an angel, like bringing people People together. So wait, is Amy Sedaris a big Go Ask Alice fan? Yeah, because Strangers with Candy is based on it, basically. The whole idea is is that like 70s style, like after school special kind of like cautionary tale. And so she, and... It was one of those weird moments where the two women were so starstruck of each other um, that I almost, as an interviewer, just wanted to just like sit back behind a plant and let them talk together like two Alexas, you know, just to hear what might like come out. So it was wonderful. And we did it for three years until the venue closed permanently. Yeah, and we uh, and we talked about that a little bit before the recording uh, began about sort of the loss of of great queer spaces in New York uh, and venues closing, if, especially if you're into more yeah off the cuff theater experience. New York's great for that because there's always some other hole in the wall or venue that isn't really a venue that will let like three drag queens come and sit and do like a Sex in the City three, you know, stage. <laughs> musical right. or like some nonsense but um having but here's the thing too is this kind of performance and programming comes at such a high cost you spend your entire life doing it managing things you're barely compensated for any of it like i was given a very small budget to work for with the show and i got to keep anything that i didn't spend but of course i'm booking performers and like it's there's nothing resembling compensation for it and over after years i'm getting this haggard look on my face because people are telling me like oh you should be on tv or i wish the show was bigger you know what's the next step and i'm like you're running just to stay in the same place right so it was kind of a relief when the venue closed because i felt free to try new things um, because I've watched my f- artist friends, like you get older, you can't afford to live where you thought you were going to live. You're not necessarily enjoying the career success you hoped you would. Right. And if you stop doing what you're known for doing, you feel like you just vanish. And so there's such 
a great cost to dedicating your life to doing these things. There's such a great cost. And I truly hit a point, you know, in my mid thirties where I just couldn't, I just couldn't justify pushing the same rock up the hill and having it roll over me over and over again. And that's how I moved out to Los Angeles and began working for the perfume laboratory. Right. Now, before we get into the perfume laboratory, I do want to ask you, uh, because I always like to ask, especially when it comes to interview series uh, shows, um, you had so many cool people uh, involved in Meet the Lady, Beth Grant, Louise Lasseter. If you had to do one more, was there one actress that you never got to do uh, an an installment of Meet the Lady for that was it would have been the dream get? Oh, I get chills even hearing this question. It's like it takes me back. I'm having like a weird like uh, Sophia from the Golden Girls moment like flashback. <laughs> um, we had one time when we came very close to getting Patricia Clarkson on the show in person. Oh my gosh! She I don't even remember what show we were doing where it would have even been relevant. But I had reached out and they said that she was interested and that she would like to appear in person because she was going to be in New York anyway. Right. And could I could I prepare questions in advance to send them, which I stayed up all night doing and had them read by four people just to make sure I didn't sound like a crazy person like you're talking about in your younger emails. Right. <laughs> you know, like, how can I lay the perfect trap to catch this beautiful, exquisite Pokemon for my show, <laughs> then, because you never know, this might be, every show could be your last one. And unfortunately, just because of scheduling problems that fell through and I, you know, you swallow, I'm sure you've had your share of those tales. You swallow so many things where you're like, oh, well, that's, that's showbiz. It's like safari hunting. And then the other one is we came so close to getting Lisa Kudrow to call in to talk about stuff for, again, I couldn't even tell you which show, but I'm sure I had a very thinly, you know, supported, uh, argument for it. But, uh, and her team was really incredible. And again, like, this is the problem, what I ran into and why people ask me about why I'm not doing Meet the Lady now. The problem with stalking career character actresses and working actresses as live show subjects is they are working constantly. They don't know what they're doing in two months. Like I was, I had to book a show a month in advance and any, you know, working actress knows that committing to something like that is like, you could miss the part of a lifetime. Right. And in fact, Beth Grant, who just was that that her, the show we did with Beth Grant is a night that I could relive over and over forever in the afterlife if possible. I'm just putting that out there. But she told me after the fact that she had actually told her agent she wanted to do the show so badly. She just thought it was so sweet, and she was in New York anyway. She had her agent. She said, "If I get any job offers for this period of time, please just do not tell me." Which is like the ultimate gift a person. Uh, yeah, of her stature sure. could have given me. One thing I will say about Beth Grant, though, is she is always working. She so is. I'm sure she recovered in that time. Oh, she like, completely did. And honestly, then she probably didn't miss out on anything. But this is why you it's so hard to book people. And if you yeah. do manage to book them, and then they get offered to go shoot a movie in like Switzerland with Jim Jarmusch or someone, of course, they're just going to hop on the next plane. So right. like, because honestly, they everyone loves the arts and they want to support us. But like, it's, I'm not exactly, you know, NPR, so. <laughs> Fair enough. So, uh, as you said, uh, following the end of that that iteration of your existence, you moved here, which is around the time we met, and you started working at Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab, uh, which has a pretty good cult following in the world of genre. So explain a little bit to listeners about uh, Black Phoenix for those who don't know, um, although I know quite a number of them do. I think it would be uh, quite good to hear from, if, from you. It's as if I consciously went out to choose something to do that was harder to explain than what I was doing before. Right. I'm pretty sure that's how my family and friends feel. Um, but Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab is a mom and pop business out of North Hollywood that's uh, been making perfumes and other esoteric home goods for about 15 years. And uh, I was drawn to them again through AMC. I interviewed the perfumer, Elizabeth Burial, about her work in horror fragrance. How do you translate Lovecraftian mythos into fragrance, etc.? Um, because they draw from Gothic art literature, uh, history, uh, occultism, 
everything you could possibly name, including lots of incredible collaborations with Neil Gaiman and Clive Barker and just incredibly impressive people. And they translate uh, characters and plot points and all of these um, elements from creative works into fragrances. Some, of course, being like, you know, we run the gamut. We do lots of what you would call more accessible fragrances that are like lovely and sweet that I could probably sell to my mom if they wouldn't give her migraines. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we also explore lots of avenues and scent profiles that are distinctly non-traditional. And so this was like a really, they have a huge following online. There's actually a forum, bpal.org. Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab is bpal to fans. And, uh, you know, of people who just review our scents and anticipate them. And it's a huge little pocket universe of nerds and perfume aficionados. And through doing that interview with Beth, we became friends and I ended up helping them at some conventions. And then I was invited to take over their social media. And then basically she knew I was at a crossroads in my life and in my career. And she said, you know, if you move out to Los Angeles, we would have a bigger job for you. And I came over and now I do their marketing and licensing and events. And I, you know, I kind of support her and all of her incredibly bizarre undertakings. Cause as you can imagine, working with all these creative types on so- something as kind of esoteric as fragrance, like the conversations are bizarre. Well, it is. It's definitely something very different within the world of genre. Like when you say Clive Barker's writing a book or, mm-hmm. you know, Guillermo del Toro's making a movie, you can creatively wrap your mind around that. Yes. But then what does it mean to partner with the director of Crimson Peak for him to be like, I want a signature fragrance right. for this? And I'm just like, that, you don't actually have to, this is a rhetorical question, <laughs> but it's just like the idea of like, can you, like the idea, like this man just wrote the, wrote the shape of water and he's like I want something that smells like fish and roses we got it we got it yeah and I've been to the lab and I've seen some like (laughs) I've seen how the process is and I mean you know it is uh for real like truly alchemy like you've got vats of different herbs and liquids and it's so fascinating and I uh just gained a whole new respect and uh understanding of of what goes on oh thank you what's funny too is that just like a movie like Crimson Peak is not for everyone uh, you know, a lot of the products we sell truly are not for everyone. And that's also, I think, a real interesting crossroads in terms of conversations about beauty and fashion, because everyone wants to be edgy and explore areas that are like less explored. Right. But when push comes to shove, do you want, are you the kind of person who wants to wear a perfume inspired by air pollution or aren't you? Right. You know, <laughs> like, uh, do you want a home and linen and atmosphere spray that smells like the clay mines underneath the Crimson Peak Manor or don't you? And it turns out uh, quite a lot of people, this just enhances their creative enjoyment of mm-hmm. books and ideas that they love. And then other people look at you like you are have maced them in the face. What I do love uh, about, and I actually own a number of uh, Black Phoenix products, including the room sprays, because I like it's just opens up a room. I think the one that I recently picked up uh, was the green wig spray. Oh, yes. That was one of our drag con, RuPaul's drag con exclusives. We did. It's just our home and our linen and atmosphere spray. But we kind of for the con rebranded it as a wig spray because everyone knows that drag queens really don't clean their wigs. So the idea is like, yeah, like here, just spray this, (laughs) spray this on your wig and it's all good. Right. It's just kind of a campy fun product that we. Um, But one thing I really like, and this will be particularly relevant to queer listeners, is that the actual fragrances come in very small bottles, which resemble poppers. Correct. It's a five (laughs) milliliter amber apothecary bottle, which gay people did not invent for their sexual sniffing purposes. But you just try telling that to someone online. This is actually what you're describing is a been an interesting, I won't even call it a stumbling block, but it's a wrinkle in our marketing to like a gay audience. And uh, for at DragCon, we've been there all three years. And so I think people are used to us, but there's always people who are like, these look like poppers. And I'm just like, well, my my argument recently about this was just to say, you know, like, I mean, first of all, most of these are babies and they don't they don't even they've never even used poppers. I don't know what they're talking right. about. But, um, you know, the first step is getting someone to go home with you so we can help there. Right. 
hope if you need poppers from there on, it's like your, it's business. your business. Yeah. You know what's interesting is uh, I feel like that's probably only a, a conversation with gay audiences. Yes. Though. Like I'm sure no one on the BPAL like message boards that's like a mom in Duluth. Oh no. Is like wow. This reminds me of VHS cleaner. <laughs> do you ever like love, do you like troll straight people by talking to them about poppers? Because I've had some fascinating conversations where you try to explain it to oh, them. Oh, girl, I have pitched a fucking horror movie about poppers oh to an, a, like a studio executive. <laughs> and my whole idea was that they played like a crucial like aspect and it was going to be like a sex comedy horror film that poppers played a, a part. And I remember they were like, yeah, yeah. And then this like crusty old executive at one of the major studios, which I won't name because I don't want to get sued. Uh, he was like, but what's a popper? And then I'm suddenly like in the room with these people who have greenlit movies that have won Oscars. Like, how do I explain what poppers <sighs> are to like old white men? Yeah. Like, these are the same people that are still trying to like crack the code of like MySpace and it's gone. So, I know. You know like, it's really fascinating. I had once I was telling a friend, a young girlfriend of mine I, something about poppers and she's like she's like oh yeah but it wouldn't make any sense for straight people to use right unless it like enhances like sex or something and I was like no I mean that's exactly what it does right. like that's that's what they do and then she's like oh and then she realized she had absolutely no good no good answer for why straight people don't use them uh, the best though is probably the only discussion of poppers that have happened on Dead for Filth prior to this <laughs> was when Del Howison was on because Del uh, used to sell them at bathhouses in Detroit but the irony is like the only conversation I've ever had on the yeah. show about poppers was with a straight guy yeah and also uh, a partner of Black Phoenix because we do fragrances for that for dark delicacies right so which is a nice hats off to you Del you're you were, are, and always will be doing the Lord's work. <laughs> well, um, this, I think, is a great moment because you talked about partnering with artists uh, to create signature scents. And you uh, have mentioned a really impressive list of names. Uh, Neil Gaiman, uh, you know, you had we talked about Guillermo del Toro. I can't believe that Mike Mignola, who created Hellboy, has done these. Yeah. You're working with some really cool people in the drag community right now. And uh, as of today, if you're listening to, to us, uh, I believe this is Friday the 20th. Uh, we actually have a little bit of an announcement that you might have seen on social media, but Black Phoenix has partnered with Dead for Filth to create a signature scent that we are releasing at Comic-Con, which Tom and I are both at while you're listening to this. And I'm currently wearing. Yeah? Yeah. I'm wearing, I'm wearing the Dead for Filth uh, prototype as we speak. Tom, why don't you tell us a little bit about the set? I didn't mean to turn this into an infomercial, but no. like, what a great, yeah. Oh my God. Can, I hope someday we're just on QVC together. Oh my like, God, like Lori Davis and Cher. Yeah, talking about <laughs> You get to decide who's who. And like Popper's <laughs> bottles. Uh, I, I refuse to pick first. <laughs> uh, so the Dead for Filth scent. So we worked with Michael talking about, you know, queerness and horror. And honestly, just even in terms of having that image from your podcast to work from is just really evocative scent wise. So we... Right. And that photograph was taken uh, by our producer, Drew Phillips. So hats off to her for oh, doing great visual work. I bet she never in a thousand years would have predicted that her photograph would inspire a uh, scent notes for an actual perfume. Well, she knows now. Uh, she knows now. <laughs> yeah. So the scent is a blend. Uh, this is uh, our perfumer's scent copy. Uh, raw patchouli, a papanax, which is like a sweet myrrh resin, and uh, a coppery dry blood exhale. Uh, honestly, if, if, you, if you've still got your underwear on while you're listening to this, I'll be shocked. <laughs> it's actually, it's amazing. Uh, I'm a big... Uh pain in the ass about sense, honestly. And when we first discussed the idea of partnering, I was very uh, clear about the fact that it had to be something that uh, was not too sweet because I am not too sweet. <laughs> and um, you do a scent called Frankengroom that's real leathery. And I kind of like the like musk of that. Oh, all, yeah. But, it yeah. was another drag con exclusive we did. It was like a drag king bride of Frankenstein. And I remember saying, I'm like, I want it, want it to be like this. Yeah. Like, I want it to be like kind of unisex, but sort of like definitely... Dead for filth, you know, so it's Horrifying, cool. but like in a way that you want to snuggle up to and get an, a, a closer smell. But yeah, so we're we're unleashing that at Comic-Con and then it will be available online later. But uh, so it's so fun. It was just like, to me, it was, it was more so than just promoting that product. It was so exciting to go into Black Phoenix and see how the process is. And to kind of like imagine people who I really admire, like Clive Barker or, you know, Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. Trying to be like, this is what I want to smell like. <laughs> oh, I love it when people actually care that much because the, so much of product 
you know, tie-in and stuff is so depersonalized now. And we're artists. We just, you know, there's nothing pretentious about like a goth perfume house in Los Angeles saying, we are artists, we want to work with artists. We love sending out prototypes to people and seeing what their feedback is going to be. You never know what they're going to say or what it's going to smell like on them. We've gotten some of the strangest notes from Neil Gaiman over the years, you know, when we did a whole series on American Gods of like 60 different scents inspired by plot points and characters and locations. And, you know, we want to get it right by his accord anyway, so that when it comes out, because nothing is going to please everybody. And if someone's like, I can't believe that you think that like Shadow Moon would smell like this. It's like, well, why don't you take that up with Neil? Right. Uh, Meanwhile, I'm convinced it's getting people laid all over America. So then, you know, you're doing and we want to do the same for you. (laughs) Well, thank you. Um, I assume that uh, my listeners out there are ready to get down with someone. And if we can help, that's great. so what a great moment uh, from getting down to raising up. I want to talk a little bit about a project that you did that I think is really important to horror history and uh, is something that is connected a bit to your roots back in, in theater in New York. And it is the curation and rediscovery and ultimately republication of the memoir of Elsa Lanchester, The Bride of Frankenstein. Tell me a bit about that project because you said uh, you had found the memoir and you initially garnered interest in it by doing a show. Yeah, I'm so happy to talk to this, talk to you about this now. I'm finally in a place where I can talk calmly on this subject. <laughs> it's been so many years. I think it was 2012 when I first found this memoir in a thrift store and had never heard of it. It was written in the 80s, 83, right, mm-hmm. not long before she passed away. Many years after Charles Lawton, her husband who had been secretly gay, uh, had passed away. Not secret from her, you find out in the book, as she tells all. And I was really touched by it because part of the reason why I think that no one has really heard of this book or and why it was ripe for rediscovery is because in the early 80s, you're dealing with uh, a gay community that is in turmoil mm-hmm. because of not only like standard issues, civil rights issues, but uh, inflamed by HIV AIDS crisis, um, so people, there's like a guardedness about these subjects. Uh, old p- people who are into old movie stars like Charles Lawton are very protective about the legacy of of people. It's not. It was not seen. I don't think as like a classy move to come out and talk about your husband's like secret gay life uh, after he's dead and he can't defend himself. Is the thinking I believe uh, for whatever. And you know, honestly, she was always the lesser figure in the marriage and lesser famous and I think she was very dismissible in her time it was and uh the book seems to the book is part of how she comes to terms with that so I was I was very inspired it's very well written and very entertaining and heartbreaking and uh she in my tradition of doing shows about women just like that I thought this is a show so we did a show called the Elsa monologues where I hired a lot of people actors and nightlife folks to read excerpts from the book and we showed clips from her career far beyond Bride of Frankenstein uh, just running the whole gamut and I kind of used that show as a kickoff to say I want to get this book back into print and having done an internship at a publishing house I knew exactly what kind of uphill climb a book faces to get reprinted particularly when the author is dead and unable to advocate for it themselves or go out and publicize it themselves and sell it you know like it just doesn't seem like a good gamble for most publishers to take on so if i had known i mean honestly i'm really happy that it all worked out obviously spoiler we got the book reprinted but it took <laughs> about five years during which it became I mean, it's so hard to even pin down who owns the rights to something, because when you're dealing with a property that is not a huge moneymaker, it's just not worth anyone's time right. to even do the research to find out if they own the rights. So I was barking up the wrong tree rights wise for like two years because they didn't even know that they didn't own the rights and they were like stonewalling me and like we were having difficult conversations and it was it turns out they didn't even own the rights right. um, which is embarrassing for me but I feel should be way more embarrassing, embarrassing to for them, them. Yep. <laughs> and then a, f- a few years in the Chicago Review Press reached out because they saw they caught wind of my campaign online and they asked what the status was and they were interested in the book and taking it on and from then on they kind of championed this because 
an actual publisher making these inquiries at least gets a little more traction. And even then we were in limbo for just forever because you're completely at the whims of a larger publisher or a larger, you know, estate executor who has, you know, like there's so little in it for them. Right. And the publisher was very sweet about my numerous emails <laughs> and they asked my input in a lot of ways. And when the book was finally slated to be reprinted, um, I, I knew for about six months before I could even say anything because it's like until the ink is dry, there's no point. Of course. And then once that was it, I'm like, okay, we're going to do shows. We're going to, we, you know, I, I, I wanted to really, I'm the person who's alive who can talk about the book. Right. I can talk about the issues that women have faced in, you know, in the 20th century and in the 21st century in terms of marriages of convenience or finding out after you're married, for example, that your husband is gay. Uh, you know, for in their case, Elsa found out because Charles got busted uh, soliciting a young prostitute, and she he had to come out to her that horrible way. And she was um, she was very accepting. It was very traumatic for her, but she was a bohemian and uh, you know raised by wild British socialist vegetarians, and she was an artist in her own right, and she accepted her husband and loved their life together but it did grow into just a horrible snake pit of abuse and resentment and he took every opportunity to lord it over her or keep her from growing to a point in her career where she might be able to go away um you know like she was the custodian of his his secret and guardian of his personal life and uh she at the end of the book after he has died, the relief that she writes about, it's almost as if she's like able to love him better in retrospect. Right. That's so interesting. Because now it's no, he's no longer actively trying to destroy her, mm-hmm. you know, and she owns up to the fact that she gave it as good as she got. And, um, and honestly, it's, she's all, it's also filled with hilarious anecdotes and such, but it's, I just felt I was reading this. And I'm like, this is 20th century LGBT history. This is what we force people into when they cannot be themselves. And it's not just gay people, you know, it's their families and their partners who end up conjoined with them in this, under the burden of this terrible secret. Right. So it, it was just very important to me. And I'm really apparent. I hear the book has been selling really well. They're a small publisher in Chicago and they did a beautiful job. And I'm so happy that we managed to get it out there. Well, I think, like you said, it's an important document in LGBT history because it shows sort of the struggles and trajectory of a generation before ours. But it's also important to horror history that, you know, this legacy of this, this iconic yeah. person is preserved. And, you know, I can't think of many people who get to say that they pretty much single-handedly rescued the the memoir. I mean, I know it's not single-handedly. There's a whole, <laughs> sure. whole collaborative process to getting a book published. But you were passionate enough to fight for five years to preserve the, the legacy of, of this woman. Uh, who most people know only as the Bride of Frankenstein, right? Uh, but who had a much richer history than that, and I think that's so important. Uh, and uh, you know, specifically when you think about what this show is all about—the yeah. intersection of horror and the queer identity—and that her memoir reveals both of those things. Yeah, that uh, that is work well done. Well, thank you. I mean, it's, it just feels a little bit like destiny to me only because the audience is there for that kind of book today in a way that it was not there 30 years right people like feminism has changed uh the community has changed people want to hear this from her also weirdly she has ended up being kind of more famous than charles lawton in the long term even if you only know her from images of the bride of frankenstein right like that is a recognizable image worldwide that continues to echo like even though it wasn't her makeup and she only took a limited amount of pride in that role because it wasn't her creation she is she invented a monster she did well speaking of doing right by queer history and uh by the horror community uh one thing that i'm really happy to share is that you are going to be hosting a queer horror panel here soon uh in long beach oh my god i am I forgot all about that. That you uh, very kindly invited me to come participate on. Well, thank you. Um, so 
Midsummer Scream is a Halloween festival in Long Beach. Uh, the lab has gone, I believe, ever since. Did we go? Have we gone all the years so far? I just love it. I love it. I love it. And uh, this year we were invited to present a panel about uh, LGBTQ people in horror and representation in horror. And uh, we've assembled just an incredible group of people to talk to. And this is just it was just an incredible honor to to be invited to even to sit on a stage and listen to queer horror filmmakers and performers talk about why why they do what they do and why we should care well and i i trust knowing your long history that uh it will be in capable and awesome hands i can't wait to see what you do with it oh my god i can't wait to see what i do with it uh <laughs> you know it's really funny i haven't done anything like this on the west coast i still go back to new york and do shows uh quite a lot and i haven't done anything like this out here so it's like a whole it's like the new batch it's like and a whole bunch of new performers and a whole community of artists out in la that i've gotten to know a bit here and there so it's just I'm really excited about it. And honestly, coming to a horror convention in July, I've been kind of hyping the air conditioning almost as much as anything because Oh man. If you want to dress up in a Halloween costume in July, you better hope there's a convention you can go to. Especially in like Southern this. California. Yeah. yeah. So uh before we head off into the night, one thing I always like to ask people, and we've been talking a lot about your devotion to movies, your devotion to art. Uh we we talked about the character actresses you love, the the legacy of a horror icon that you helped contribute to preserving, you know, this horror panel that you're hosting. But what have you seen recently that uh, you like or inspires you? Uh, God, what have I seen recently at all? Um, you know, what I, I have to say, so I honestly, I meet a lot of, I'm, you know, I've made a lot of friends out here and some of them are younger like gays and queers who haven't seen all the same stuff. So I've been like actually a good friend of mine. Uh, we've been like I've been rewatching some stuff and we've been showing him some stuff. Like, have you seen the the '80s Dr. Caligari movie? Oh yeah, it's outrageous. Oh yeah, that's like the stuff that I. I mean, I know queer horror filmmakers are all over stuff like this right now, and the problem is is so rarely do you even. You're lucky if you hear about it. Right. You have to really go looking for it in order to to hear about it but just going and rummaging through or we watched uh, Robert Altman's Three Women which I've seen like 10 million times and then every time like halfway through you're like oh my god why am I watching this <laughs> uh, but I mean just because it's so effective in like the dread and the atmosphere right so I've honestly just been doing a little crate digging in my movie collection that I haven't really unpacked since I moved here and having some screenings at my house and it's been the most fun and it's honestly just really reminding me why I did a lot of the stuff that I did before well, there's nothing quite like a rediscovery and I think in some ways your career is all about rediscovery yeah so I'm a trash I, digger from way back it's just like I mean I found the Elsa book in a thrift store I find everything in a thrift store it's like as soon as I understood the idea of a thrift store I like as a as like a teenager, I was like, oh, all right. So like where why would anyone shop anywhere else? You know, well, I think you can call it a thrift store. Uh, but I think what you like about it is preserving a legacy of something. You like to find the history of an of an object, I think. It's well, now you have that power because before all you could do is look at it and wonder. And you're right. lucky if you could find someone who could tell you about it. But there's something sexy about the wondering, too. Yeah, there, there is. There is for sure. But it's so fascinating to wander through a store and not even like the people who are like constantly looking up stuff on eBay to see how much they can sell it for. But just like seeing a name or a reference somewhere. And then you're like, oh, my God, how have I not seen this like weird homoerotic movie from like the 80s that probably has no actual homosexual content whatsoever or right. like just like odds and ends and I think that that's like you know it keeps you curious and it helps you be real about how what your time is really worth because I think everyone is so afraid of wasting time they don't take chances on a lot of movies and mm -hmm. even on a lot of like queer movies and stuff you know and like, really, you have to go through that experience to find the five minutes in a movie that you'll never forget. Absolutely. Well, I like that. I also like the message of staying curious. Tom, beyond the panel uh, that you're hosting at Midsummer Scream at the end of July, uh, in the name of all things queer horror, uh, what's next for you? Uh, I'm going to New York City in August to be a guest judge at the Mix Nobody Drag Pageant in Brooklyn, which is an annual pageant that is like 
uh, a really like all inclusive, all genders, all performance types pageant. And the lab uh, is sponsoring it and giving them their grand prize. So I'm going to go do that. And then the lab will be at Dragon Con in Atlanta and we'll be at New York Comic Con. And we're making plans to do the oddities flea market here in September in L.A. So I'm basically going to be covered in perfume for the next few months and... And you wouldn't have it any other <laughs> I way. I wouldn't have it any other way, but other it might be affecting my lift rating score. <laughs> Tom, where can people find you? Uh, well, I'm angry on social media. Uh, I'm, I have a, I'm, oh my God, I completely stumbled. I'm like, I don't actually know where I am right now. I never um, know. I'm Tom Blunt on Twitter. I'm here lies Tom Blunt on Instagram. I have my website. I managed to scoop out all the other Tom Blunts out there and get tomblunt.com. So at least people can find me if they want information about the Elsa book or about shows, or if you want to hire me to do something fabulous or whatever, you know, bring it on. Um, so, you know, look, look for the tall weirdo in makeup and too much perfume. You're my favorite tall weirdo and too much makeup and perfume, though. Tom, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. <sighs> this has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. <laughs> <laughs>